This morning, we're going to be in Ephesians 4. Go ahead and turn to Ephesians 4, verses 29 through 30. We're probably going to leave the doors open for the sake of airflow, so do your best not to let the kiddos distract you. They're just worshiping in their own little way. Ephesians 4, 29 through 30 says this. And it's a pretty monumental statement. It's a short little verse, and uh, it's where we're, where we're camping out this morning. Ephesians 4, 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the uh, privilege it is to gather and to not have to whisper. God, as always, we, we would like to pray for another church in the area. And uh, I just want to lift up Steve, uh, lost over at Grace. As I talked to him a couple weeks ago, it just sounds like you are doing amazing things in that body of believers, and it's exciting to hear what's going on. And I pray that you would continue to, uh, to uh, equip Steve and his leadership uh, so that they may equip the saints for a work of ministry that is far greater than anything any staff could do. God, I praise you for the things you're doing over there, and I, I thank you uh, that we're teammates. Lord, this morning, in Ephesians 4.29, you have set the bar quite high. As, as we talk about letting no corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only words that build up, uh, that is a, that's a high call, and that is not easy for a single person sitting here, including uh, the guy preaching. God, I tremble and humbly beg your uh, guidance this morning to know that in a like manner, every word of this sermon is supposed to, not one of those words is supposed to be corrupt, and every single one of those words is supposed to build up. Again, none of us can do that. And so we are desperately dependent upon you. And I pray, Lord, that you would encourage us, that you would let us feel the weight of our words as we look at what weight you've given them in the Scriptures. And I pray that we would find ourselves closely watching what we say, so as to make sure we're always building up and never tearing down. Lord, we love you. We thank you for Jesus. And uh, we have great reason to celebrate this morning, and we have great hope, even though this call is extremely difficult. So we thank you for Jesus. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. Ephesians 4.29. You may be wondering, uh, or maybe odd, I'm, I'm going to be preaching this week and next week. Ben's on vacation, on his way out of town. He called me about three, four hours in and informed me that the AC had gone out on their van and it was 98 degrees in the van and they were starting the vacation off strong. So y'all can be praying for them as they had to jump a hurdle to get to the beach. Um, but uh, I'll be preaching this week and next week. And it's a little odd, Ephesians 4.29, why would you jump into the middle of a paragraph, in the middle of a chapter, in the middle of a book? It seems odd. The reality is that I believe that this sermon began to come together four weeks ago when we started talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in John 14. I believe that this, this consideration of the way that we use our words as members of one another began to come together as we look in John 14 and we see troubled hearts and we see Jesus comforting them with the truth about the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit does. This is a big point this morning. The reason 
that, that, uh, that we're going to Ephesians 4.29 is that the way we use our words has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. The way we use our words has everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. For the last three weeks, we've seen that the Spirit does three things in particular is what we focused on. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit gives us understanding about who Jesus is, the truth about Christ, and the Spirit indwells the life of every single believer. Those are three big deals. Like, we should be thankful for every single one of those things, as well as the other things that the Spirit does, but the, the Spirit helps us, the Spirit tells us the truth about Jesus, and the Spirit indwells the life of every believer, and that's massive. Jesus ministers to these troubled hearts in John 14 uh, with this truth about the Holy Spirit. And what I'm getting, what we're going to look at this morning, what I think the scriptures are exposing this morning is that if we hope to really build one another up, see at that moment Jesus built his disciples up with the truth about the Spirit. And if we want to build one another up, we have to speak in a like manner. We have to know that our words have everything to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. So if we speak words that built up, there's two kinds of words. Let me read it again in Ephesians 4, 29 through 30. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. So there's the two kinds of words. There's the corrupting words, not just corrupt. They're not just sitting there being corrupt. They're having a corrupting effect on those who hear it. There's corrupting words and there's building words. If we speak only words that built up, what we're doing is we're sowing to the Spirit. If you're speaking words to someone that builds them up, you're sowing to the Spirit. Now, there's nothing more annoying than those words that someone thinks are building up, but they're not building you up. You ever had that scenario where you're, you pour your heart out to someone and you need help, you want some guidance, you want some insight, and they give you a keep on keeping on or chin up, buddy. You know, it's like, that doesn't help me. That's not encouraging. In fact, I'm upset even more now because you gave me nothing. You just said, keep on keeping on when there was so much more you could have, could have helped me with. See, what we're looking at here is that when we speak only words that build up, we're sowing to the Spirit. To sow to the Spirit is to look, and we got to know this because we're going to be talking mostly this morning about what it means to quench the Spirit and what it means to grieve the Spirit. So we got to know what it means to sow to the Spirit because they're opposites. To sow to the Spirit means that you are looking at where the Spirit aims to do work, and you're taking the seed of your resources and you're depositing them there. Does that make sense? Are we clear on that? Because that's really important. The Spirit's doing work. The Spirit indwells the life of every single person in here who is a child of God. We want to know where the Spirit's doing work, and we want to take the seed of our resources and deposit the seed of our resources where the Spirit's doing work. That's what it means to sow to the Spirit. Now, you don't have to have, uh, like, you know, be able to see the future to know what the Spirit is going to do. What are the fruits of the Spirit? You already know ahead of time because of Scripture what the Spirit's going to do. The Spirit's always aiming to produce the fruits of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If you know that the Spirit is aiming to produce, let's say that you're in a conversation with someone and you're about to lose all self-control, you can think to yourself as a believer, I know that one of the things the Spirit does is aiming to produce the fruit of self-control. And so rather than ripping this person's head off, I'm going to take the seed of my resources and I'm going to deposit where the Spirit's doing work and I'm going to aim to do all I can to, further, to promote the fruit of self-control. Does that make sense? The Spirit's doing work and He tells us the work that He's going to do ahead of time. He tells us, not it. He tells us the work ahead of time. And we can know what's going on, and we deposit our resources there. So, on the flip side of that, the resources that we're talking about, that seed 
that we're depositing there is our words. That's what we're focusing on this morning. There's lots of resources that all of us have. This morning, we're focusing on our words because they are massive. They have significant weight because of what God has done with words. The exact opposite of sowing to the Spirit, if we ever speak rotten, corrupt words, we quench and we grieve the Spirit. So we got sowing to the Spirit, which is good, and we're being used for good things. We're putting God's glory on display in our lives. But then on the flip side, you can grieve or quench the Spirit. Now, I want to talk about this for a minute because it's kind of confusing to me. So if it's not confusing to you all, I'm going to talk through it in front of you. Um, quenching and grieving the Spirit, and how do we keep from it? The words used here to talk about quenching the Spirit are the same words used to quench a fire. Has anyone been camping? I went camping this week. This was a horrible weekend to go camping. It was like a jillion degrees. But I went camping on Friday with my brothers. And uh, there was a burn ban, so we couldn't even have the chance to quench the fire. Um, uh, but here, uh, quenching, quenching the spirit, those words that are used are the same as quenching a fire. If you take a bucket of water and you throw it on a fire, you are thereby quenching a fire. Now, whatever blessings of warmth, which we did not need this weekend, or whatever blessings of... Uh, light that you would have had, you now do not have, because rather than fanning into flame the fire, you quenched it with water. Does that make sense? It's the same with our words. If we speak rotten and corrupt words, we are quenching the Spirit. See, what goes on here is this. The Spirit is always there. See, what happens in that situation is fire is not no longer fire. The fire is still fire. You're just not benefiting from it like you would have had you fanned it into flame and not thrown a bucket of water on it. The Spirit is always there. We need to know that because as we talk about quenching or grieving the Spirit, I don't want you all to think it's like double dutch where the Spirit's in and the Spirit's out and the Spirit's in and the Spirit's out. He loves me, he loves me not. That's not how it works. The Spirit is always there. So if we consider the last three weeks, we know what the Spirit does. The Spirit helps us. The Spirit teaches us the truth about Jesus and the Spirit indwells the life of every believer. So in terms of quenching or grieving the Spirit, you quench the Spirit in as much as you refuse His help in your life or keep others from a knowledge of that same help. Does that make sense? So the Spirit's there to help, but you quench the Spirit if you refuse His help or if you keep others from a knowledge of that same help. So let's go back to that scenario where someone needs insight. Let's say that someone has someone, 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 someone. Let's say that a person has another individual who is um, angry with them. And they're kind of angry with that person as well, and they're coming to you and they're saying, what should I do here? What, what should I do? And you have a chance there to give them some insight, you, to help them in what they should do. But you could make a big mistake if you get all wrapped up. They're like telling you what the person did, and you're like, oh, I can't even believe that. You should just rip their face off and just tell them how dumb they are. That's not help, and you're not telling them of the help that they have in the Spirit. It's quite the opposite. It's similar with truth here. You quench his spirit in as much as you turn from his truth and promote a lie and or keep others from believing that same truth. So the spirit's all about health. The spirit's all about truth. If you turn from the truth, you promote a lie or you keep someone else from seeing the truth, that's called quenching the spirit. And so give that same conversation. Someone's telling you... Um, they're angry, and they, what should they do? How should they handle this situation? And you, be, you just come in and say, man, you just need to let them have it. You just need to just, just flip your lid, and you will feel so much better. That's a lie. That's not true. Has anyone ever ripped someone's face off and felt great about it afterwards? If you did, now's the time to repent and follow Jesus. <laughs> you quench the spirit in as much 
As you turn from his truth and promote a lie, there's truth that you could put forward in that same scenario. And this is just one scenario. There's millions of scenarios in our lives. But you don't want to quench the spirit. You quench the spirit also in as much as you disregard his indwelling in your life and the lives of your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's say that two believers have a difference of opinion or a difference of the way something is or maybe even a different belief within the same faith, and it's causing a friction among them. When those two believers, that can happen. It's okay to have different beliefs within the same faith. It's okay. Go tell everyone in Hunt County you know. It's okay to have different beliefs in the same faith, and it's beautiful. But you can also, like, escalate it and, and, and become hateful in your speech and rude and, and corrupt. Consider if you have a different view of something with a fellow brother, and it may be something even small, whatever, and you go to each other, if you, indwell, if you ignore the indwelling spirit in your life, you're going to stop sowing the seed of your resources to produce the fruit of the spirit. So you're going to abandon self-control. You're going to abandon gentleness. You're going to abandon the call to quit being angry, and you're just going to let them have it. In the same way, that person, if they abandon the indwelling spirit in your life, they're going to do the same thing. And that's not fruitful. That, in fact, quenches the spirit. Two believers sitting there having a conversation both have the indwelling spirit, and it's beautiful. But you ignore the spirit, you quench the spirit, and the conversation doesn't turn out so hot. I was also thinking about this, and I'll say this briefly, for young men and young women who are in a relationship before they're married. For a young man and a young woman who are in a relationship before they're married, there are boundaries that need to be set physically, right? I, I hope we all agree on that. And... If you ignore the indwelling spirit in the, the other person who is a believer, and you ignore the indwelling spirit in, in yourself who claims to follow Jesus, you will cross those boundaries very quickly. And that is not sowing to the spirit. That's quenching the spirit. So those are some examples. So here's what happens. At these moments, the spirit does not leave or abandon us. The spirit doesn't check out like, you're an idiot. Later, the spirit doesn't do that. The spirit is there. However, we're quenching the beautiful help that we have in Christ. God intends particular blessings for his children, and we can sow to the Spirit and, and be in amazed, be absolutely amazed by what he does, or we can quench the Spirit and not welcome the blessings that he intends for his children. This would not have happened had we sown to the Spirit rather than quench the Spirit. Now, one small side thing as we talk about quenching the Spirit, we're talking about our words, these corrupt rotten words can quench the spirit, and we want to sow to the spirit. For those who believe in a sovereign God, a God who is above all, a God who cannot be trumped, a God whose works will not be undone. In Isaiah, God says, I am God, there is no other like me, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I believe that. For those of us who believe that, those believers who say that God is sovereign, no one can trump him, this can be kind of hard to wrap our heads around, couldn't it? Can you see where the trouble kind of, it kind of becomes weird? Because you could kind of start thinking that in a sense, you would feel like your bad sinful actions or your wrong response are otherwise undoing or overpowering what the Spirit would have done. Does that make sense? Like you could say, well, if, if I do something wrong and that quenches the Spirit, does that mean that my sin trumps the Spirit? The answer is no, no. That is not how it works. Why? Quenching and grieving the Spirit does not put us any more over or above the Spirit than sinning puts us over or above God. God will accomplish all of His purposes. You will not undo any purpose of God by your sinful actions or your words in this case. 
So quenching and grieving the Spirit doesn't put you any more over or above the Spirit than sinning puts you over above God because it's not the Spirit or God who suffer, it's us. It rather reveals our depravity and our absolutely desperate need for Jesus by whom we would otherwise have no help, no truth, no indwelling Spirit, and no eternal blessing. See, sin brings about death, but on the cross of Christ, Christ conquered death. So God has won. So this is not a situation where it's like, oh man, I trumped God by being a moron. No, no, you're the one who suffers, not God, not the Spirit. God has won. So our aim this morning is to see the gravity and the weight of our words. I really want us to try really hard in this 105-degree sanctuary to see the gravity and the weight of our words. Our aim is to sow to the Spirit with our words, not grieve or quench the Spirit. I want you all to consider the importance of words. There's this phrase that I've heard many times in my life, and it's, God has a special plan for your life. It's this real big, broad, vague thing where I can just kind of make it whatever I want. Like, oh, free tickets to this. God has a special plan for my life. Yeah, let's do that. Or, oh, that's on sale. God has a special plan for my life. Let's buy it, you know? Like, you can, you, that bit, it's a big, broad statement. God has a special plan for your life. You can take it in a jillion different ways. I want us to break it down to an even smaller building block here, and I want us to see that in Ephesians 4.29, he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. What that means is that God has a special plan for every single word that comes out of your mouth. Think of it in those terms. God's special plan has to do with every word that you utter. So consider the importance of words. I'm going back to Genesis, and I'm just going to kind of walk through quickly some big things. I want to see what role words played in those so as to help us feel the weight and the significance of words. God spoke the first words, and creation came into existence. That's monumental. He could have done a bunch of things. He could have gone, you know, whatever, but he didn't. He spoke words, and creation came into existence. God chose words as the means that he would use to communicate to man. God chose words as the means that he would use to communicate to man. I was trying to think this week how odd it would be if he chose something else. Think about that. How odd would it be if God chose something other than words for us to communicate to him and each other? We would be like playing charades all the time or making noises or smoke signals or something. Like it would be weird. Words are significant because that's how we know each other. That's how we know God. And that's how we know the difference between us and God. It's through words that he's given us in this gift of language that we can know what his plan is for our lives and thereby know the difference between us and him. That's a really big deal. God used words to give specific instruction about the ark. You remember all those really specific words in the ark? 30 cubits here, 50 cubits here, 100 cubits here, put the roof here, do this, cover the whole thing in pitch, all these details. He used words to communicate those details. He also used words to give specific instruction about the temple, about the sacrifices, about the ceremonial washings, and about offerings. And what happened when the world became wicked and turned from God and tried to build a tower to heaven to say that we don't need God to get to heaven? He confused their words. In Babel, to keep them from multiplying their wickedness, he interceded and said, words are so significant. Words have such weight to them because I, God, created them. What I'm going to do is I will confuse their words so that they can't all get on the same team and and try to uh, multiply wickedness again and again and again. He confused their words. Why? Because words are powerful. And had he not done that, they may well have gotten on the same page. They may have gotten a higher tower. I don't think they would have gotten to heaven. But he confused their words because of the massive weight of words. Turn to Matthew 1. 
Matthew chapter 1. And looking at the significance and the weight of words, we, we can also look at the things that the prophets said. Because some of these prophets spoke these really specific words, like hundreds, even thousands of years before Jesus, and they're really particular words. And so we see the weight of those words, and they see what they carry, and they see the good news that they, they spread. And in Matthew one twenty two, it says this, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And listen to the details in these words. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Those are huge words, and they were spoken a long time before Jesus. But they're really big words. Behold, a virgin. Oh, you mean like Mary? Okay, we can match that up. That's good. Shall conceive. Wait, I thought she was a virgin. She conceived. Oh, so is by God. That's amazing. And bear a son. Oh, you mean the son like Jesus? Yeah, a son like Jesus. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Those are massive words spoken by a prophet a long time before Jesus even came onto the scene as we know him in the New Testament. Now, Jesus was always there, but when he came in flesh and dwelt among men, it was a different thing. But it was spoken of with words ahead of time. Uh, look at uh, Matthew 2, 6. They're on the same page. In Bethlehem, uh, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, uh, so it is written by the prophet, verse 6, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, uh, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. That's Jesus. Look at 3, 3, Matthew 3, 3, next page. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. We're talking about John the Baptist here. John the Baptist was the one who leapt in the womb when Jesus came in in another womb into the same room, and he actually leapt, and he's the one who's crazy eating bugs and honey. My daughter Ella loves that story in the wilderness eating bugs and honey, and uh, he comes on the scene as was prophesied years before by use of words that God gave huge weight to. God used words to communicate through the prophets specific details about the coming of the Messiah. And when that Messiah came onto the scene and was tempted by Satan, you know what he said? He said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Significant. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, it is said of Christ, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So now words are not just something that he speaks. Word, the Word is who he is. This is significant. There's weight here, and it affects the way we talk today. At the end of the life of a faithful believer, you should eagerly anticipate hearing the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Think about all the other words you speak, just throughout the course of your life, like really big words that you hear spoken, like it's a boy, that's big, it's a girl, I do. Those are big words. Words have significance. Your words are unique and have great significance because of the uniqueness and significance that God has placed on them. None of the rest of all of creation has the gift of words. Next week, we'll talk more about how words are a gift and how we use them to build up. But this week, we're going to look at those words that are corrupting. Each of us sitting in this room, on average, on average, speaks 25,000 words a day. There's some good books that don't have 25,000 words in them. And each of us sitting here, on average, speaks 25,000 words a day. Now, I know there's some individuals in the youth group who speak way more than that. And I know there's some other individuals 
maybe older individuals who don't speak quite 25,000. But on average, it's 25,000. And what's significant is that according to Ephesians 4.29, of those 25,000 words, which doesn't even include texting and whatever else, every single one of them is to build up. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. Every single one of those 25,000 words is supposed to build up. Is anyone feeling like they've dropped the ball? I am. I'm preaching, and I'm thinking, is every single one of these words building up? Have I said anything that's torn down? Of those 25,000 words, not a single one of them is to be corrupting. Not one. Feel the weight of that. That's what you're called to as believers. You're actually called to do that. In Ephesians 4.29, if you'd like to go back there and just keep your finger there because that's kind of our main topic. In Ephesians 4.29, topic, scripture, sorry. Um, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. This is definitive. This is not let some. This is not try not to. It's let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. So keep your finger there in Ephesians and turn over to James 3.8. This will be real encouraging. Because I'm feeling the weight right now that, okay, Of all those words, not one is supposed to be tearing anyone down or corrupt in any manner, and every single one is supposed to build up. That's difficult. So let me see if James has any encouragement for me. James 3.8 says this. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Thanks, James. So you're called to not let any corrupt words come out of your mouth, yet here it says no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Could you imagine if you said that to someone? Your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. They'd want to rip your head off with their words. that's That's a big statement. No human being can tame the tongue. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouth. No human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's actually further in that same chapter. It's compared to a bridle or a bit that goes into the mouth of a horse. The the picture that's being drawn there is a bit is small and a horse is big. And with just one little movement of that bit, the entire big horse will move. Or the rudder on a ship. Comparatively, a ship is huge and a rudder is small. But if you just, just barely touch that rudder, the whole ship moves. The entire ship will move. It will change its course. It's also compared to a spark that'll light a great forest fire. Have you ever seen those forest fires on the news, like in California, where they're just out of control? Most of them started by a spark. And what the Word is saying is, your words are significant, and they carry weight, and they're just like that. A restless evil full of deadly poison, a bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder on a great ship, and a spark that can light a forest fire. Now, these scriptures don't go against each other because I believe all scripture is breathed out by God, and he's not a God of confusion. He tells us that in those scriptures. So this has got to come about somehow, but I first want to think about how true it is that your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Just personalize this however you want. Think about those times that you have offended someone and you didn't even realize it. Has that happened to anyone in here? Fantastic. Three of you. It's happened to me. (laughs) Weekly, almost. You can offend someone, and you didn't even realize that you did that. Like, this person's over here losing sleep because of what you spouted out of your mouth, and you didn't even realize it. Why does that happen? Well, it's because the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Has it ever been the flip side? 
Have you ever been offended by someone's words and they didn't even know that they offended you and you're trying to figure out what to do, how to talk to them? It's the same thing. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And you know what's crazy about it? It's usually not some big speech that offends you. It's usually like that one word that was said in the wrong tone or that one sentence that was like, why did they say that? What was that? It's usually a small thing that offends you or hurts you or wounds you or makes you sad or makes you angry. It's usually not a speech of hate. It's usually some little sideways, little bitty, just crooked. Why did they say that? The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think about how many times you've thought, no, I probably shouldn't say that, but you went ahead and said it. You ever done that? Well, you're sitting there and you're thinking, you're listening, you're listening, you're like, I probably shouldn't say that. I probably shouldn't. I could not catch that. I should not have said that. That's happened to all, all of us. Why? Because your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Think about those nights that you stayed awake thinking, oh man, I really, really wish I wouldn't have said that. Words are to such a degree that you can't just go and say, hey, you know what I said? Disregard it. Clean slate. We're good, right? No, it's not that easy. Sometimes the wound caused by one word can take time. With the work of the Holy Spirit, you can get through it as believers in Christ, but the reality is, if you say something, you're sitting there in bed at night, oh man, I wish I wouldn't have said that. It's not enough just to pick up the phone and say, hey, I just want you to know, I wish I wouldn't have said that. Are we cool? Because you wounded someone, because what came out of your mouth revealed something that was in your heart. The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So at this point, you may very well be saying, thank you for the encouragement in the preaching today. You have told me to do something let no corrupt words come out of your mouth that by nature of my humanity, I cannot do. This seems hopeless. You're telling me that God is calling me to let no corrupt words come out of my mouth, yet you're also telling me that God says the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison and no human being can tame it. That doesn't match up. This is not encouraging. I'm not being built up yet. It seems hopeless. And this is a big point. Without Jesus, it is hopeless. That's the point. No human being can tame the tongue. Jesus can. No human being can ever try, no matter how hard they try, keep from saying something corrupt or rotten or hateful or rude or spiteful to someone. But Jesus can. So yeah, it does seem hopeless to think I'm called to never let one corrupt word come out of my mouth, yet I am told I can't tame my tongue. Jesus can. It's only hopeless if you don't cling to Christ. If you don't understand what Jesus accomplished on the cross. See, without Jesus, it is hopeless. No human being can actually do by themselves what God calls them to do. Because he never calls you to something without Jesus. No human being can ever speak in the manner that they're called to speak by themselves. Because we need Jesus. Without Jesus, your tongue will remain untamed. And without Jesus, you will never build anyone up. You need Jesus for this reason. We desperately need Jesus because this is not a behavioral issue. This is a heart issue. This is not. Your words, if they're corrupt and rude and rotten and spiteful and divisive, it's not just a behavioral issue. It's a heart issue. If my daughter was to be sitting at the dinner table with her fork just beating the tar out of the table and putting dings in it, new table, she would, be, uh, she would have a behavioral issue at that point, and I could say, Ella, stop it! 
And the behavior could be, she could stop it. And that's just a behavioral issue. Stop beating the table with your eating utensil. Okay, behavioral issue solved. Now, if she had hate in her heart towards me when she did it, that's a heart issue. But there are behavioral issues. What I want you to see is that your words are not behavioral issues. They're heart issues. Why? Because in Luke 6.45, Jesus makes a staggering, staggering statement. And we're going to look at it closely. Out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of his heart, his mouth speaks. Out of the overflow of your heart, your mouth speaks. What comes out of your mouth is what is in your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if you're constantly, if, if people constantly hear bitterness in your words, then it's likely because it's bitterness in your heart. It's not just a behavioral issue. Stop being bitter. Okay. Well, you need Jesus for that because he changes the heart. If there's anger in your words, it's not just a behavioral issue. Stop being angry. It's a heart issue. It's the same with jealousy. It's the same with discontentment. If you've ever heard anybody spouting any of those things, constantly discontent, constantly complaining, it's not just a behavioral issue. It's a heart issue. And here's what we got to see. When God commands his children to do anything, when God commands you sitting here today to do anything, make a beeline to the cross. That's what his children do. Because what God commands you to do is nothing that you can do on your own. Any command, no matter what it is, when you receive that command from God, you make a beeline to the cross. Why? Because it's the finished work of the cross that enables you to obey the command. You've got to get that. If God commands you to do something, don't you? All right, I'll try hard. Oh, I failed today. I'll try harder. Well, this seems really hard. No corrupt talk, God. Make a beeline to the cross and know that the finished work of Christ on the cross is that which enables you to obey the commands of the Lord. It's very real. It's not just a fairy tale in a faraway land long, long ago. The effects of what happened on the cross are invading your heart right now. It's very, very real. So anytime a believer hears a command from the Lord, we make a beeline to the cross knowing that it's the finished work of the cross that enables us to obey God's commands. Now, now why is this? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart. It's not, I mean, consider this for a moment. Your mouth speaks from the abundance of the heart, not the abundance of the circumstance. Hear me? Not the abundance of the situation. Not the abundance of the scenario. Your mouth speaks from the abundance of your heart. It's easy to try and dismiss our corrupt talk by saying it was just a situation that made you say something. For instance, everybody go here with me. You get rear-ended by another car. What's the first word that comes out of your mouth? Is it corrupt? That corrupt word did not come out of your mouth because of the circumstance of being rear-ended by another car. Let's say that your child... Sometimes your children can have this gift of pushing the envelope as far as they possibly can so as to try your patience, and you finally just, as a big bald man over a three-year-old girl, you stop it! You are just so out of line! And you spout anger and total lack of self-control. Was it just the scenario of your kid being disobedient that caused that? No, it was what was in the heart of the man, this fictional man. That poured out. 
And so I want us to make sure we see this because it's easy to just, to just pawn it off and say, well, it was just the scenario. What's happening there is the situation of the circumstance is just a trigger to show what was in your heart. Every day, you will absolutely be tempted to lose control, to be angry, to be jealous, to be covetous, to, to be bitter, to be divisive. Every day, you'll have those opportunities because there's a jillion scenarios that present the opportunity for you to speak in that way. But what you must see is it's not the scenario that causes those words. It's your heart. No matter how crazy the scenario is, you cannot say, if they wouldn't have said that, I never would have said what I said. Yes, you would have because it was in your heart. If that, would have hap- if that would not have happened, I never would have said that. Not true because it was in your heart before that scenario came about. It was in your heart before the circumstance reared its ugly face. It's a heart issue, and we desperately, desperately need Jesus. See, when Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, he's explaining the difference between two men. He's explaining the difference between a good man and an evil man. So when Jesus says, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks, the him that he's talking about is either a good man or an evil man. And that good man is going to have goodness stored up in his heart because of Christ and the indwelling spirit. And he's going to spout words that are good. The evil man is going to be the total opposite because he's not treasuring Christ. He does not have the indwelling spirit and the evil that's in his heart is going to come out of his mouth. Jesus sees it as necessary to explain that and we should embrace it this morning. There's a good man, there's an evil man, and there's different things that come out of their mouths because of the condition of their heart. So when we look at this evil, I want to ask the question, when is the first time that we see evil in the Word? Turn to Genesis 3 with me. When is the first time that we see evil in the history of the world? Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Those are the first corrupt words that ever came onto the scene. They don't look all that bad, do they? He just asked a simple question, right? These are some of the most corrupt words ever spoken, and they're spoken by the pride-filled father of lies. These words. This is when evil enters. This is when corrupt words are first seen spoken. When the father of lies says, Eve, did God actually say you cannot eat of any tree in the garden? Those are corrupt. Tripp, in his book, War of Words, uh, I'm reading along with the study in Ephesians. It's a really good book. He states that God is at work taking people who instinctively speak for themselves and transforming them into people who effectively speak for him. That's what God's doing by the work of the Spirit. You instinctively speak for yourself. Why? Because you are connected to Adam, and you need a new Adam. Because you know what Adam did? He started speaking for himself. He started turning against his bride. He turned against God. And so, because of your link to Adam, you instinctively speak for yourself. And because Jesus is our new Adam, what God is doing by the work of Christ and the indwelling Spirit is taking us from people who instinctively speak for ourselves and turning us into people who effectively speak for Him. It's the same picture as the vessel, the dirty, filthy vessel, which each of us are at different points or were at some point. Uh, Every day we need redemption, no doubt. But it's a picture of Jesus taking this vessel that's just filthy and gross and cleaning it out. 
and making it a vessel of mercy that He sees fit to be poured out wherever. That's what each of us are. So He's taking you and me who instinctively speak for ourselves, and He's turning us into people who effectively speak for Him. And He goes back to the garden with this, and He says this, and it's beautiful. With our talk, we are either imaging our Creator and Lord, or we are imaging the serpent, Satan. Our words build and give life, or they tear down and destroy. They are important. See, for the first two chapters of Genesis, there's no corrupt words because there's no heart condition that's depraved. In the first two chapters of Genesis, every word that was spoken was spoken for building up, and there was nothing corrupt about it. Think about the first words that Adam spoke. It was love poetry, remember? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Call her woman. That's love poetry. And there was nothing selfish about that phrase. When God said to Adam, this is what I made you for, go do this and tend to the garden, and Adam obeyed, there was no corrupt nature there. It was beautiful for two chapters in Genesis. That was what it meant to walk with God in the garden in the cool of the day for those first two chapters. I took a list from Ephesians. He uses let no corrupt words come out of your mouth, but then he uses other phrases to explain what those corrupt words are more specifically. And so I want you all to consider that in these first two chapters of Genesis, before Satan comes in and says what he says, it is void of all these things. There is no pride. There's no selfishness. There's no bitterness, arrogance. As I read this, consider yourself, do these things fuel your speech? There's no bitterness. There's no arrogance. There's no cunning. There's no craftiness. There's no deceit. There's no falsehood. There's no anger. There's no clamor. There is no slander. There is no malice. There is no filthiness. There is no crude joking. There is no immorality. There is no impurity. There is no covetousness. And there are no threats. Humanity and God were united and it was reflected in their words. And there was no corruption. But then corrupt words were spoken. And the entire environment changes. Think about that. Corrupt words were spoken, and the entire environment of the garden changed hugely because of these little words that were spoken. I'm thinking about the things that Satan could have done. See, Satan's corrupt words became Eve's corrupt words, and Eve's corrupt words became Adam's corrupt words. And what we see in the garden for the first time, sadly, we see Adam and Eve turn against each other. And then we see Adam turn against God. We see Adam saying, this woman caused it. The woman you gave me. That's what happened. They were against each other. That wasn't building up. His words at that point were corrupt. They were rotten. And so here, we see that Satan came in, and all he did was ask a twisted question, and it corrupted the entire environment. With just words. Think about what Satan could have done. He could have put on some totally wicked idolatry festival. Like he could have come in with carven and graven images and said, your God is not even here. You can't even hardly see him. He worshiped the... He could have just caused mass chaos. He could have just brought about every kind of immorality possible. He could have just invaded the garden with a carnival of sick wickedness. But he didn't have to because he had words that were weighty. And all he did was say, did God really say you can't eat of any tree in the garden? What's the problem with that? The problem with that is God didn't say that. He took God's words and he twisted them just a little. And that was all it took 
for that corruption to corrupt others and corrupt the entire environment. And all this was brought on by these words. Ephesians 4.29, the word for corrupt or corrupting, we got to see that in Ephesians 4, where where our scripture is today, we got to see that it's corrupting. It's not just this corrupt word that's sitting over there. We don't want to come around it. Those words are corrupting, and they have an effect on everyone who hears it. So all of this was brought on by these corrupt words, and that cor- the word for corrupting there is sapros, and it just means rotten. It just means rotten. It's the same word they use to describe rotten fruit or a rotten tree. If you have a tree that continually produces rotten fruit, you know that there's a root problem, Right? It's not just a fruit problem. It does you no good to just pick the fruit and yell at it and throw it away. There's a root problem on that tree. If you have a tree that produces rotten fruit, there's a root problem. If you have a mouth that produces rotten words, it's a heart problem. It's the exact same thing, rotten. So a question. First, you desperately need Jesus, just a reminder. And the question that comes after that, what happens if you eat rotten fruit? You get sick, right? I take a big rotten apple and I eat it, I'm likely to get sick, right? What happens to the environment where rotten fruit or rotten anything else dwells. The whole environment's thing, y'all, y'all have had that thing happen in y'all's refrigerator, right? Where you forget that that Tupperware thing was in there, and all of a sudden the whole house stinks, and you're like, what is that smell? Or for you people who have babies and diapers, that one diaper that got away and you found it a couple days later, yeah, that's disgusting. Rottenness messes up the whole environment. When you're in a place where there's rottenness, it, it messes up the whole environment, and it did that in the garden. Satan's saprose words, his rotten words, corrupted the hearers of those words and corrupted the entire environment, and it changed, and it was never the same. Now, uh, I was thinking of an example of this. Lindsay and I had a date night a couple weeks ago. My mom was keeping the kids. It was awesome, and we were in Dallas, and so we went to Starbucks, and we're sitting on the patio, and we're just enjoying each other's conversation. And we're talking about the things that God has done in our family's life and just how crazy abundant God's provision is and how wonderful he is. We're just talking about, you know, direction for our family in the future, making sure, you know, we don't want to quench the spirit. And uh, I think that my words to her were building up. And I'm, I'm certain that her words she was speaking to me were building me up. And it was a sweet time. It was really a sweet time. And then this group of young men and women migrated to the table right next to us and began to speak corrupt, rotten words. Now, at first, what do you do? Oh, just, they're just kids. We'll just ignore it. But it, became to su- it got to such a point that those words, they could no longer be ignored. And not only could they no longer be ignored, but then you're offended. You're like, I can't believe they just said that. And then it's to such a degree that you can't even sit and continue in the upbuilding conversation because the whole environment has changed. And then my patience is really being tested because I want to rip someone's head off. And my self-control is really being tested because I'm like, come on, it's date night. These once every two months, you know? Don't you know that? And so we've got this thing that happens when that corruption and that rottenness comes in, and you can't even enjoy the good stuff. Could you imagine trying to sit and have a great meal in a kitchen with rotten food everywhere? You couldn't even enjoy the meal. It stinks. There's flies. The environment's wrong because of the corruption and the rottenness that's around you. So just as it happened in the garden, just as it happened on the the patio of Starbucks, uh, it happens now. Our rotten, hateful, divisive, bitter, discontent words will not only reveal the sickness in our hearts, 
but it can make others sick and it can corrupt the entire environment. Y'all think about how easy this is. Think about how easy it is for your home to have a Bible study together and within two hours everyone's yelling at each other. Why is that? Because your tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. How is it that coworkers can inevitably just not like each other? I've just got a problem with them. Is there any office environment where people don't have issues and beef with other people? Why does that happen? Because our tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Luckily, that never happens in churches. It can happen here just as easy as it can anywhere else. A church is just a big family. That means a church could just have it on a larger scale than even a family could if we don't watch every single word. So my encouragement to you this week is pay close attention to every single word that you speak, every single word that you write, every response that you have, mainly because God has commanded us to do that. God has commanded us, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up. You see, what's missing here is a third category. We're just missing this third category that all of us so desperately want, don't we? The third category known as the neutral word. If I could have a category for neutral words, I could just hope that most of it lands there. I wouldn't have to assess a thing if I had a category for neutral words. But God does not give us a category for neutral words in Ephesians 4, 29 and 30. He says there's corrupt words, which you're to speak none of, and there's uh, building up words that you're only supposed to speak. There's no category there for neutral words. One scholar once said, there is no man who ever spoke a neutral word. When you check the motives and you check the intent and you check the direction that those words are leading, you will every time see it is not neutral. It's either in the direction of building up and in the direction of corrupting, being rotten. This is important for us to understand because if we believe there's a neutral category, we will not be vigilant and urgent to put to death those sins in us which cause us to speak in a corrupt way. And in fact, the only time that we will check ourselves is if we rip someone's head off or if we publicly spew profanity. Those are really the only times that you would feel led to be like, oh, maybe I should look at my words and the content of my words because you can just assume that if it's not over the top bad and rude and profane, that maybe it fell into the neutral category. We have no neutral category to depend on. They either build up or they tear down. So we got to be careful what we say. See, if we understand that there's no neutral category, we know that a neutral category would be an unbiblical caveat to the call to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. See, you're, you're called to be slow to speak because your speaking may very well tear someone down and be rotten and corrupt. So be slow to speak, but be quick to hear. I encourage you to embrace this call and know that you're embracing it within the bounds of a community. Being called to speak no corrupt ing talk is a call that's a community effort. Why is it a community effort? Because to talk, there's got to be someone else. To have a conversation, there's got to be another person on the end of the conversation. And what we're going to talk about next week, it says, as fits the occasion. The occasions are about other people, not us. I love reminding the youth of that. Every chance I get, the world doesn't revolve around you. There's these occasions where there's other people, and you speak good, upbuilding, encouraging words to them. Don't tear down. That's where we're going next week. But this no corrupt talk is a community effort because in order for us to say something corrupt, someone's got to be receiving it. In order for us to build someone up, there's got to be someone being built up. So this whole thing about our talk is totally a community effort. We must be teachable. We must embrace accountability. 
I mean, if someone comes to you to talk about your speech and all you do is rip their head off, well, what have you really done? You just prove that you were in sin. You got to be open to accountability. You got to not just be open to it, but you have to welcome it and encourage it. Guys, please tell me if I'm speaking words that are tearing anyone down. I don't want to do that. That's against what God designed. Please tell me that. We must be embracing accountability, which is very countercultural. And we must build one another up so as to keep ourselves from tearing one another down. So here's what we need to pay close attention to this week pay close attention to your phone conversations. Pay close attention to your conversations at work. Pay close attention to the content of your emails. These are all words used to make these things. Pay close attention to the emails you choose to forward. And if it says forward it to 15 people in five minutes, that is corrupt. <laughs> but pay attention to the content of your emails, the things you choose to forward. Obviously, you know, if you're forwarding wickedness, you're sowing to the flesh and you're quenching the spirit. Pay close attention to your Facebook updates. You've got to use words to do that. Some of us can be deeply convicted about something, and you just got to check your words and the way it comes out in your text messages, in your emails, in your Facebook updates. Pay attention to the way you speak to your spouse. Is every single word building them up? Children, pay attention to the words you speak to your parents. Is there anything corrupt coming out of your mouth in the way that you speak to your parents? Pay attention to the way that you speak to your children. Are you building them up or are you provoking them to anger with your angry tone? Because with each word, you're either sowing to the Spirit and imaging your Creator, or you're quenching and grieving the Spirit and you're imaging the serpent, Satan. Next week, we're going to focus on the words that, built up, that build up. This may seem like a bit of a downer for y'all. Like, a, the, oh, all we did was talk about the corrupt talk, and we're all horrible, and we have restless, evil tongues, poisonous. It's not good. No, Jesus makes this good. Jesus gives us hope. We can do none of this on our own, but we have a community of believers who are all indwelled by the Spirit, who are called to hold each other accountable and promote this. And we have Jesus who has a finished work at the cross that changes our hearts so that the abundance of our hearts are all those fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and not wickedness, bitterness, clamor, and all those other things, divisiveness. So next week, we're going to focus on the words that build up. We're going to talk about how they are to fit the occasion, the occasion that includes other people, and the amazing reality that in them, in words that build up, you actually give grace to those who hear. That's where we're going next week. But in order for us to appreciate those words, we must be vigilant and urgent not to speak a single corrupt word. And I know that as I'm saying that, none of us can do that without Jesus, and none of us can do that without community. So let's pray in that direction. Lord, I thank you for a spirit uh, that can keep us engaged in the word, even when it's really warm, even when things may be convicting, even when... Um, when we don't want to maybe listen to what's being said, I, I, I'm thankful for the work of your spirit that indwells every believer who sits in this room right now, and I'm thankful for how good of a God you are. I fa I'm thankful for the redemption that actually exists. It's not just a theory or a concept. Our hearts are actually changed because of what you've done by no merit that we could have put forth. We can't earn any of this blessing that you've given us, yet you give it abundantly, and it's mind-blowing. Lord, I pray this week, and not just this week, but here on, this may be the first time some of us have heard this, I don't know, but Lord, I pray that we would not speak any corrupt 
rotten words. And I pray that we would wholeheartedly always, in every circumstance, in every situation, aim to speak a word that builds another up for your glory so that more people can see how wonderful Jesus is, so that people can hear our words and know that we are head over heels in love with Jesus and we're very aware of our desperate need for Jesus. Lord, this is not a behavioral issue. None of us can just leave here and try and fix it by just stopping it. Every single one of us has to stop and pray alone, pray with our families, pray with a friend to say, Lord, there are things in my heart that are keeping me from speaking the words I'm supposed to speak, and the things that are in my heart uh, that are not of you are having me speak words that I'm not supposed to speak, and we must repent, and we must follow Jesus. And Lord, I know that not a single one of us can repent and follow Jesus without a work of the Spirit that's outside of us. We love you so much, and we are so thankful for the finished work of the cross, and we desire to be a people who speak like this because we know the value that our words have because of the value that you've given them. We thank you for Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.